Well, good afternoon. I would welcome each of you back this afternoon, especially our visitors. It is always encouraging to have visitors, especially at the afternoon service. It always lifts us up and, and encur- builds us up, encourages us to see, see new faces. So we are very thankful that you all have chosen to be back with us again. And again, I would invite you to go ahead and take out your Bibles. And if you would, go ahead and open them up to the second book of Corinthians. Second Corinthians, in just a few moments, we'll be reading from chapter 2. As we take another opportunity this afternoon for us to study from God's Word and to look into His inspired Word. And this time, consider, consider the, uh, the opportunity that God has made for us to know our enemy. While we were at Brixton, in, uh, which is directionally, I, I, I can't remember now which direction it was, but not very far from, from the heart of Johannesburg, um, we, were, we were worshiping there Sunday morning with the, with the Church of Christ that meets there in Brixton. And the preacher in, in, the, in the Bible class asked this question. During Bible study, he said, he said, what do we fight? He said, do we fight people? Do we fight with guns? Do we fight with knives? Are we building bombs? Are we setting traps? Are we in some sort of physical conflict in this life? And the answer to that question came from a very little old lady sitting in the front of the building, she very boldly, with a, a, a lot of c- conviction, she said, absolutely not. We are fighting against municipalities. And everyone shared a laugh, and, and he, he stopped for a minute, and he said, no, no, not municipalities. She said, yes, municipalities. It's in the Bible. We're fighting municipalities. And, and after we all, all laughed about that a little bit more, we he, he told her, no, that, that is principalities that we, <laughs> we fight against. Now, having spent a little bit of time over there, I could see why they would want to fight the municipalities. But the, the, the obvious word she was looking for there was certainly principalities. But that conviction that she had, well, that conviction is certainly what God would desire. Not, not the uh, conviction that is based off of something wrong, but the conviction to know who it is we fight. We are in a battle and we need to know our adversary. And that is why we read uh, what Paul writes in the second, uh, second Corinthians here, chapter 2, verse 11. He alludes to the fact that, that there's a possibility that our enemy, the devil, could have an advantage over us. When he says in verse 11, So that no advantage will be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. That's what I want to spend a little bit of time talking about this afternoon. The schemes of the devil. Informed Christians, however, don't have to be in a position in which they are taken advantage of, which they are caught off guard. Because Satan's advantage is based upon, what we just read here, us being ignorant of his schemes. But if we are aware of the methods, we are aware of maybe the devices that some translations might say, that Satan uses to lead people astray, then we can resist him, we can do so successfully. So what are some of these schemes of the devil? How, how can we defend ourselves against them? Well, I hope that during this study, during this time we have this afternoon, we'll, as we try to answer this question, I hope we will do so by, by looking at this from a standpoint of, of accepting the fact that we are in a very real conflict. Sometimes I think that uh, the devil is put, in, put into two categories oftentimes. Usually, a, or sometimes a category of... He just, he's, he's, not a, he's a mythical beast, if you will. He doesn't really exist. He's not something that we have to be afraid of. That, uh, given by this uh, chapter right here alone, is certainly not the case. He is someone that is dangerous, someone that can, uh, 
capture us with these schemes, can take advantage of us and take us away from Christ. But the other opposite end of that spectrum is that sometimes people attribute to the devil powers that which he just simply does not, does not have. Sometimes people speak of the devil as if he was equal with God, as if he was uh, come from the, a seat of power like God. We talked about this morning in our Bible class, uh, that idea of the Lord of hosts, and that is talking of God with an unmeasurable power. Satan does not have unmeasurable power. He certainly does have power, but as we see here, his, his power is limited to trying to scheme. He, he has no ability to just go and pluck us up wherever he wants. He must catch us off guard if... If we are aware of these schemes, we can, we can certainly defend ourselves against them. And so that's what I want to look at this afternoon and begin by noticing this first scheme of Satan that Paul describes later on in the very same epistle when he talks about how Satan blinded the minds of people. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and read with me verses 3 and 4. He says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. <clears throat> there are some whom the God of this age, that is how Satan is described here in, in this chapter, the God of this age has blinded. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-3 through 3 said it would be done through doctrines of demons. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later, latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own consciences with a branded iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared and by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude for it is sanctified by means of the word of, God, of the God of prayer. Today... Today there are many people blinded to the truth by these doctrines of demons. And noticed in that passage there, those doctrines of demons were, were presented by men whose consciences had been seared. Uh, the, these doctrines that we are, are oftentimes faced with today, we, they don't come from some sort of shadowy figure that, that, that we might point to and say, oh, that's a demon. That means that must be a doctrine of a demon and we don't have to listen to them. They come from men, men who who look like you and me and look like someone that we can trust. But whenever we start to hear what they have to say, we can see how they can certainly cause us to be blinded to the truth. Doctrines such as atheism or agnosticism that believe that there is no God or that there is no certainty about whether or not there is a God. Doctrines such as evolution that simply says that we are, we are all animals and that somehow we life sprang up and came from from animals and, and, and evolve through time into what we now have today as, as human beings. The doctrine of humanism, that man is the end-all, be-all, that there is nothing greater than man. He is the measure of all things, and in him alone is the solution to all of our problems. If you have a problem, mankind can find a way to solve it, but there is nothing else. If mankind can't solve it, there is nothing that can. These beliefs can be so blinding that sometimes they completely hinder one from seeing through to the truth of God's message. So how do we defend ourselves against a scheme like this, against this, this measure which Satan will use to try and deceive the minds of others? Well, the best defense against it, as 2 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us, is actually a strong offense. Look over 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. 
says here, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful, not for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations, and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. One of the things that we read here in this passage is that the greatest weapon that we have is the weapon of truth. The weapon of truth can defeat the weapons of the flesh. Weapons of the flesh are, are, sometimes we look at that and we think, that's the knives, that's the guns, but that's not really what it's talking about here. These weapons of the flesh are lies and deceit and, and the things that are, that are perpetrated by those who have had their consciences seared. Those weapons of the flesh are things which turn our hearts away from the truth. But the greatest weapon that we have is the truth. Uh, over in the John chapter 8, <clears throat> John chapter 8, verse 32. We read here, And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. There is a great deal of, of, of power that comes from knowing God's truth. And when we know that truth and we are applying that truth to our lives, uh, especially on a regular basis, we can use that as a weapon to defend ourselves in attacking head-on these weapons of the flesh. And that means that there's going to be a time and there's going to be a place. And those two words are very important. There are going to be a time and there's going to be a place for discussions. There's going to be a time and there's going to be a place for debating for, for talking, uh, talking through and arguing and, and, and reasoning uh, in such a way as to remove the speculations that we read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5. Christianity has always been a thinking man's religion. And oftentimes, we, we, we sometimes want to try and, and blend ourselves a little bit with the world and say, well, you have your belief, I have mine. When we do that, when we, when we aren't taking a stand for the truth, and again, remembering that there, that stand has to be one that is done gently, that stand has to be one that is done out of love, that stand has to be one that is done in the correct way, but we are, we are not taking a stand for the truth. We are, we are not using that weapon that we have. We are allowing the flesh to continue to spread their lies. Consider the example of Paul over in Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, verses 2 and 3, <clears throat> well, starting in verse 1, it says, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's customs, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. This is a perfect example of what, what is being talked about over in 2 Corinthians, this idea of tearing down speculations. Paul went in and started right away, as was his custom, to go in and to take these speculations, these thoughts that people have, and start trying to mold them into the truth. Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 9. He entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school 
of Tyrannus. We see that Paul was, this was his, this was his habit. This was what he would do. As he went into a place, he would go and he would find those people, especially those who were already spiritually minded, and he would go to them and he would start reasoning with them, start showing them the truth and start talking to them about what they believed and about what was real, what was true and how there was differences there and how they might try to come to the truth. Oftentimes, as I said, that attitude is one that we don't always have today. That is an attitude that is not always seen in a world that is becoming more and more uh, PC, more and more politically correct. You can't tell me about what I believe. We can't talk about what I believe because it's my belief and I don't have to share that with anyone. But again, that's not the example that Paul left for us. Other weapons that we have involve Christ-like attitudes. And these attitudes play a big part in using that weapon that we have in the truth. We must present the truth with a Christ-like attitude. Things that are mighty in God. Turn over to Second Corinthians, as we're or back over to Second Corinthians chapter 10. <clears throat> back in Second Corinthians 10, and again, let's look at verses 1 through 4. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent, I ask that when I am present, I need not to be bold with the confidence with which I purpose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful. When he talks about here of, of being in the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, he certainly has a battle to fight, but that battle is going to be fought with the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He would go on to tell Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, about about patience and about humility. Here in verse 24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So there certainly is a way that we are to go out and to, to fight against this scheme of the devil. It is, it is through the truth. It is through presenting God's truth first to ourselves to make sure that we are not caught up in this scheme and then to others that are caught up in this device that their minds having been blinded. We are to present that truth to them, but we are to do so with a Christ-like attitude full of meekness and gentleness and patience and humility. And as Ephesians 4.15 goes on to tell us, speaking the truth in love. When we do that, we can defeat this device of Satan. Another one that we would like to look at this afternoon is this device here in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 9, talking about persecuting those that, that are trying to do right. 1 Peter 5, <clears throat> verses 8 and 9 says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Peter warned that the devil sought to devour Christians. And he sought to do so through persecutions. <clears throat> Paul worried. He worried in, in 1 Thessalonians 3 verses 1 through 5. He was worried that the afflictions brought on by Satan uh, there might tempt the Thessalonians to give up, to, to, to turn back. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3... <clears throat> 
He says here, verses 1 through 5, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know, and for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fearing that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. Even today. This was Paul's worry. This was his, his fear for, the, for those in that day in, Thessalon- in Thessalonica. But even today, Satan persecutes Christians, sometimes literally. Sometimes literally through great physical persecutions and, and sufferings that Christians are, are, are having to bear the world around. And there, there's places where, where poverty is, is, is so low and, and the only way to actually survive in some of these places is through illegal ways. Jim talked this morning about Belarus and the, the statement that their, their president had said, uh, if you own a house, you're, you're a thief. Because to actually get by, to actually survive in these places, that it, it takes, it takes Ill, uh, ill-attempted gains. And yet Christians are called in places like that to live with honesty. That was one of the biggest problems that we heard about as people come to, to, to the Christ in South Africa. Because lying had become such a natural way of life that they had to, they had to overcome that and, and oftentimes suffered because they couldn't get things that they really needed because they would tell the truth or because they couldn't protect their families from things that, that they were faced with each and every day like a corrupt government that might come to their house and ask them a question and it was common practice, just lie about it. It'll be okay as long as they'll go on. Well, these new Christians are learning we can't lie about this anymore. We have to tell the truth. And, and we're losing property and losing finances because of this. So there are very real persecutions uh, on many levels that Satan still places on Christians today. This is the ways that Satan tries to turn the heart away from God. But there are also social persecutions that are often faced. Oftentimes, especially for young Christians, they face peer pressure. Even old Christians, especially when we, when we are maybe mixed in with, with people from the world as we should be, when we are going to, to those people that we would hope that would see our example and would come to Christ, and yet they want us to go and do something with them. They want us to go to, to maybe to the bar with them. They want us to go do something that we know wouldn't be right. We face peer pressure. We face ridicule for what we believe. Ostracism sometimes. There's been several, several accounts of, of people whose families have completely written them off because of their de- decision to follow Christ. So Satan still uses this, this scheme today to persecute those people who are trying to do right. And there's, this is such a dangerous scheme because it is two-pronged. Uh, two One, he's trying his best to stop those who are doing what is right. Those who are making a stand, but when they stop doing what is right, that has an effect on other people. Other people who are maybe trying to do what's right. Or other people who are considering following the Lord. But now we see Satan working and taking away those, those lights to the world. So this is a very dangerous scheme and a very powerful scheme that Satan has. How do we defend ourselves against this scheme? One of the ways that we do that is exactly what we have gathered together here to do today. is to encourage one another. To lift one another up. This is what Peter sought to do in 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, we read verses 8 through 9. 
First Peter 5, 8 through 9. We read that. Now let's read, uh, let's read verses 9 and 10. Again, we'll read 9. It says, But resist him firmly in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called to you, you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Then verse 11, To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter is doing exactly that. He is encouraging those in this letter, saying, yes, suffering will come, and you will face suffering, and and it will be there, but it will only be for a little while. Even if it is for your entire life, in the grand scheme of things, it is only for a little while. And what happens at the end of that suffering? It says the God, in verse 10 there, it says the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory. The God of all grace for on whose behalf you are having these sufferings. In Him uh, will Himself perfect you. He will confirm you. He will strengthen you. He will establish you. There was a great deal of encouraging go, encouragement going on here by Peter. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we read that he had sent Timothy to do the same things. To do the same thing to the Thessalonians, to, to in, encourage them, to lift them up. And so that's one way that we, encourage, that we can fight this scheme is by encouraging one another. When we see someone who is suffering from persecution, and we know of somebody who, is, who has had this in their life, we go to them, we lift them up, we encourage them, we remind them that this is not all that there is in life and that there are good things that, that are coming for us that believe. Another thing that we can do is we can adopt a proper attitude. That is to say we can rejoice which is something hard to understand when we are being persecuted. But we can know, as we read in James chapter 1, we've studied already in our, in our morning class, we've studied there in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, when it talks about the, the result of our persecution, saying, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." These trials that we are going through, they make us stronger. They, they are building something within us. And there is a project that is being completed within us. Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 4. Another passage regarding this says, <clears throat> And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So we know these trials can make us stronger. They can bring us closer to God. And we know that those who endure are blessed by God. Turn back over to Matt, uh, to 1 Peter again. This time 1 Peter chapter 4. <clears throat> 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 12 through 14. Here it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing that were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. This was, this was his message to them, to, to, to those that he had written this letter to, that to realize that blessings were coming. That there was going, that those who are enduring the, the sufferings, those who are going through this, were going to be blessed and be blessed by God. And so to hang in there and to commit ourselves to, to God in doing good. In 1 Peter 4, verse 19, so we go down just a little bit farther, saying, Therefore, 
Because of these things, because of what we just read there. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to, the, to a faithful creator in doing what is right. God is our faithful creator. Faithful to us in that he has made promises to us, promises that we can count on, that he will keep. He, take note, he takes note of our suffering. He sees the pain that, that is brought on by sin and by Satan and, and what he has done to try and turn our hearts away from God. He sees that and he will one day repay us for our trouble. He will repay those who have suffered in his name. And that means he's going to repay Satan as well for the suffering that he has caused. And he is going to give us rest. It's that rest we read about in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. That great day that we look forward to. But there is another device of Satan. <coughs> One that often has a very deadly effect. And that is when people begin, when Satan allows, tempts people to enjoy evil company. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, which says, Do not be deceived, or do not be tricked. Bad company corrupts good morals. Wrong companions, wrong friends, wrong business partners, wrong com- uh, companions can defeat our effort to do what is right. If you want to look back over for an example of this, turn back to 2 Samuel for a moment. Turn back to 2 Samuel, right after 1 Samuel. There we go. 2 Samuel chapter 13. And look, uh, read with me here about uh, Amnon and Tamar. Verse 1, it says, Now it was after this that Absalom the son of David had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon the son of David loved her. Amnon was led astray by the counsel that he received from his friend Jonadab. The, even though he saw, uh, he saw that Tamar was beautiful, he recognized that she was his sister. But it says in verse 3, Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, and the son, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very shrewd man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so depressed morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Then Amnon said to him, I am in love with Tamar, the sister of my brother Absalom. Jonadab then said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me some food to eat, and let her prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. And we see Amnon going on with this plan and what that leads to, uh, (coughs) excuse me, what that leads to uh, and the sin that is caused by it. All because he listened to the counsel of his friend, someone who really wasn't his friend at all. He would offer up this sort of advice on how to, to have this relationship with his sister. Today, many Christians are hindered in their spiritual growth for similar reasons, because of the company that they keep or the activities in which they, they engage themselves in uh, with that company. So what's our defense against this? Turn over to Proverbs chapter 13. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 20, we read, we read of, of the wisdom that, that, is, that is here saying, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Whenever that is our companionship, is that of fools, that of those, and whenever we read about fools in the Bible, we're reading about those who have set their minds, their hearts against God, that are not righteous people. If that is our companions, then we must realize that there is nothing but danger waiting for us there. We, we will suffer harm right along with them if that is who we make our companions in this life. 
We need to heed the advice of Paul over in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. <coughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 16, when he talked about being when he talked about coming out, excuse me, coming out from among those or, or not being equally yoked, excuse me, not being equally yoked to unbelievers. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 16 said, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are temples of the living God. Just as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. We read these verses. We need to recognize the important truth that is there, that the, the company that we keep, the people that we, that we align ourselves with. And this is very, very good advice for, for our young children as they grow older. And as, as parents, we need to be reminding of them of this, that it, this should play a huge part in who they choose to be their spouse in life. Because when we align ourselves with those who are not, those who are not uh, of like mind in that they want to serve God, they want to follow His commands, and they want to, to help their, one another get to heaven, then we put ourselves in a very dangerous place. There's a real danger there of suffering harm with them. In fact, verse 17 goes on to say, Come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be, my, be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. He says, come out from among that. Come out from among these things that are, that are corrupting our morals. Come out from among that bad company and make yourself separate. Make yourself, as we would later read in other passages, sanctified, set apart. But finally, we need to consider one more device of Satan. Because all these three have been bad. Blind, he blinds the minds of people. He persecutes those who are trying to do right. He, he gets people to enjoy evil company. But this one here is probably one of the most damaging scheme that he has of all. Because of the huge effect that it has. Not only on the one who is committing it, but on the rest of the world around them. And that is when Satan discourages people through unchristlike Christians. Regarding this scheme of Satan, let's turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This relates to Paul's concern from our text that we, just, that we read at the beginning. In verse 6 it says, Sufficient for such a one is this. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. So that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for, for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage will be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. What is Paul talking about here? This passage we are reading about, uh, we will remember that there was a sinning brother amongst them. Who was, to be, who was disciplined back over in 1 Corinthians. He was disciplined and he had now repented. He had turned from that sin. And the need was there now for the church to, to not continue on in, in punishing him, but to confirm that they had love for him and to forgive him. Otherwise, Satan might take advantage of this situation. He might take advantage of that by defeating the church by their unwillingness to forgive. That, that message would certainly spread around. 
of these people who, who pointed out my sin, pointed out that I was wrong, and I repented of it, but they never accepted me again. I always wore that mantle of adulterer. I always wore that mantle of one who'd been caught in fornication. They never forgave me. That message is going to speak volumes louder than any message that we could take to somebody else, that those Christians there could take and say, Christ loves you. Because they're not going to believe that message if, we're not, if, if, we, if they don't have forgiveness in their hearts for this brother who had turned from sin. So that's one way that he could defeat the church in that. But also he was over, could overcome that weak brother by his being swallowed up in sorrow. If forgiveness was, was never there, was never granted by the congregation, it's continually suffering from, from the looks uh, down the nose, from, from people kind of turning their back on him because of what he had done. What's the point of even trying? Why, why, why don't I just give up? The same problems exist today. Satan wins many souls by this very device. Christians who are unloving, Christians who are unmerciful, Christians who are unforgiving and become stumbling blocks to others. Whenever they, whenever they go out and maybe try to spread that message of Christ, the only thing that shows through are, are the characteristics of them that are so far from Christ. Satan loves to use these, these sort of devices to block our efforts and to just come in and to attack and to ensnare. Christians who are apathetic, Christians who have grown tired of doing what is good, who have grown sluggish in their service and in their devotion, Christians who adversely influence new Christians. When they come, <coughs> when they come with this great zeal and they are, they are ready to, to serve and they are ready to do what is right, and they're surrounded by people who are ready to, to retire from Christ. They are ready to give up. They have said, I've done my due diligence. Satan loves to pounce on these opportunities to devour. So what's our defense? How do we defend against this? Turn over to 2 Timothy for a moment. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. One thing that we can do as individuals that can be very, very helpful in this situation is to place our ultimate faith not in the brethren, but in God. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16 says, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be, met, <clears throat> might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom to meet to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. When Paul says these words. Well, this is obviously not to suggest that the that brethren just simply can't be trusted. That's, that's not what he is saying here. But Paul recognizes, as we should recognize, that the brethren, the other members of the, uh, of the body of the Lord, are people are people just like you and just like me and we are fallible and we are going to make mistakes and we are going to not do things the way that they should be done and we are going to sometimes have unchristlike attitudes and that doesn't make an excuse for those things they still are, are transgressions against the lord but we must remember in cases like that when that happens, in cases when we feel like we are all alone and we feel like we are we're the only ones wanting to do what's, what's right or when we feel like we have 
maybe we have done something wrong and nobody wants to offer us the forgiveness even though we have repented. We must remember the Lord is not fallible. We must remember that the Lord is our faithful creator. The Lord is faithful to the promises that he has made to us. So that's the first, exa- the first thing that we must do is to look to him for our ultimate faith and not look to others around us. But we must also remember that not all brethren are going to set the best example uh, either. Over in 3 John, third John chapter uh, verses 9 through 12 says this, John writes, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so, and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone, and from the truth, uh, and from the truth itself. And we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. John says here, look to the good examples. Yes, there are going to be brethren that don't set the right example. But do not look to those examples and imitate them. Look to those examples that are good. Don't be discouraged by those that are, that are less than Christ-like. Now I want to say that we've talked about the schemes of the devil this afternoon. But four schemes is not an exhaustive list of the schemes that the devil has. This is only a sampling. The scriptures certainly reveal that there are many, many ways the great deceiver works. We need to study. We need to prepare ourselves in this battle to put ourselves on guard. There's also a very interesting work of of fiction. And I say that to to point out that this is no way a, a scriptural source of material. But it contains a very interesting viewpoint into the way mankind is oftentimes influenced by the devil. It's a book by the name of The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And I encourage you at some point to take that book and to read it and to listen to it as what it is, the words of a man, as he, as he talks about some of the ways in which the devil can trick us. But I trust that this study this afternoon has been sufficient to show this. Our adversary is indeed strong. He is very real. He is very dangerous. And the ignorance of his, desire, of his devices and his schemes makes us susceptible. And if we are not diligent, he can indeed take advantage of us. But I also would remind us to remember this. And I believe this is the passage our sister in South Africa was thinking of. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, it says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. If it is your true desire to guard yourself against the devil then we have the ability to do so. We have the ability to stand against him. But we must realize that that power is not available to us unless we are completely placed into, transferred into Christ Jesus our Lord. 
<coughs> Turn over to Romans chapter 8. This will be the last passage that we look at this afternoon. Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> Verses 37 through 39. It says here, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have no chance of being victorious over Satan without being in Christ. How is it that we do that? We do that by completely immersing ourselves, our lives, into His. It means we believe in who He is. We, we confess that to others. We, we allow our, our lives to be molded into, into His image by turning away from the evil things that, that once filled our lives and turning towards His righteousness. We are baptized in waters of obedience, uh, in obedience to Him and to His will, and we continue in that way. We continue into that path no matter what. Satan throws at us, we will walk following him. This afternoon, if we can help you with that in any way, I encourage you, please let it be known right now. Come forward as we stand and as we sing. <clears throat>